first charges. This morning, two juveniles were taken into custody by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation on allegations of aggravated arson relating to a fire that originated in the, in the chimney tops area of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park on or about November the 23rd, 2016. And then a dismissal. I can't believe that they get away with throwing a match on the ground and it kills 14 people, ruins everything I ever owned and kills my two cats and there's nothing. It's not right, it's not fair. Recovery. It's been very, very heartwarming to see the response that we've gotten from people that have been our customers throughout the last 47 years. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then recrimination. They could have put out that chimney fire with the planes the military had. They should have done that, and they didn't. They made, it, they made it, that was a much bigger mistake, you know, than thinking, thinking they had it covered. As devastating as the November 2016 wildfire disaster was for Gatlinburg, the ensuing months offered little good news and a lot of heartache. Loved ones buried loved ones. Neighbor reached out to neighbor. Victims, they struggled to rebuild. But still, the state's worst natural disaster in 100 years left wounds, accusations, divisions, and they were slow to heal. Now came the blame. Fire rained down from the hillside beside the motel. Like a bunch of embers falling from the sky, huge, looked like lava. Every minute and second counts for people fleeing for their lives. From WBIR Channel 10 in Knoxville, this is Inferno, the Gatlinburg disaster. The series that looks at what went wrong, what was lost, and how the region has rebuilt. I'm Robin Wilhoit. And I'm John North. Fire is really close to us. We're going to die in here. Why do they warn us? 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 This is Inferno, the Gatlinburg disaster. 14 people dead, hundreds injured, some 2,500 buildings damaged or destroyed. A gut punch to a region that relies on tourism to put food on the table of its people. Like an ugly gash that festers, the months after November 28, 2016 brought slow, very slow, and painful change to Gatlinburg and Sevier County. With the actual shock of the fire over, survivors now had time to ask why and how. How had this fire started? It came in the middle of a long drought. Why hadn't the National Park Service moved more aggressively to douse the arson, set up on the popular Chimney Tops Trail in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park? Why had communication and planning been so poor the day the blaze swept into town? Who would be accountable? And what were leaders doing to make people whole? I want to start by expressing my sincere condolences. Less than two weeks after the November 28th fire, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and Sevier County DA made a big announcement. As a result of the local, state, and federal agencies working together, we are pleased to announce that two people have now been charged for their role in starting the fires. Unfortunately, these two individuals are juveniles. 
Authorities said two teenage boys, juveniles from outside Sevier County, had set that fire along a trail while up on chimney tops the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Someone spotted them later. Someone took pictures of the smoke trail rising from the steep rocky edge, and someone passed those photos along to us here at WBIR. TBI Director Mark Gwynn and Sevier County DA Jimmy Dunn kept their remarks brief on that December day. No specifics about the teens, nothing about where they came from, very little, really, which would later prove telling, because as the months passed on, the case stalled. Normally, most uh, cases inside the National Park Service are, are uh, handled in federal court, but the U.S. Attorney's Office was consulted and has deferred prosecution to the District Attorney's Office at this time. That's why it will be handled by uh, District Attorney's Office here in Sevier County. Looking back on it now, it seems odd that state authorities even tried to do it this way, have the state charge two boys for a crime that occurred in the National Park. That's the jurisdiction of the federal government, not Sevier County, Tennessee. Nevertheless, additional charges are being considered and all options available to the state when dealing with juveniles are on the table, including the possibility of seeking a transfer of these juveniles to adult criminal court. Robin, this was one of those cases where just very little information got out, period, about the boys. We heard rumors that one of them may have come from a fairly prominent or visible family. Um, I think they were, we heard, maybe 15 and 17. We never knew the relationship, whether they were brothers or friends. We didn't know why they were there, although it would make sense. Since it was the day before Thanksgiving, they probably were out hiking or messing around. It was just a whole lot we didn't hear about this case. And uh, even after that press conference, very, very little would be released. That was about it. We did. We asked multiple sources, um, and they just were not going to say anything. Well, a curtain descended on this case, and it would not be lifted until June of 2017. That was seven months later. Thank you all for coming here. And time for another surprise. Charges against the unidentified boys were being dropped. Lawyer Greg Isaacs represented one of the boys, who he called John Doe number 2. I want to be very clear, and I want to be very unequivocal, and that is that my client and the other juvenile based on the proof and the evidence, did not cause the death and devastation in Gatlinburg, period. This time, there was no press conference by the DA, only a press release from General Dunn. It made two key points. The state could not prove that what the boys did led directly to the inferno that overwhelmed Gatlinburg five days earlier. And second, that the state of Tennessee did not have the authority to prosecute a crime committed in the Smokies. Early on, lawyers thought they could pull it off, but a closer look at documents revealed the Smokies specifically was absent from any kind of mutual prosecution agreement between the state and the feds. The federal government could prosecute if it wanted to. The chances of that, however, weren't likely. For one thing, the government typically does not prosecute juveniles. So now everyone knew no one would be charged with the fire. I will tell you that um, he is a very nice, well-mannered uh, young man, very well-spoken, and uh, his mother uh, is very grateful and very tearful today. But, um, I mean, imagine you're, you're a, a young adolescent and you are accused of committing one of the uh, most heinous crimes 
uh, in recent history here in East Tennessee. Even though it's widely accepted that that little fire would grow into the blaze that scorched so much of the mountain town. I want to just strongly re reiterate that, that my young man's family, uh, their thoughts and prayers are sincerely with those people in Gatlinburg that suffered losses. Uh, my sincere thoughts and prayers are with those people, and hopefully this will be a step uh, toward finding answers, uh, healing, and closure as this matter progresses. The public didn't hear from the other teen's family or lawyer. The names of those boys have never been released. So far as we know, nothing's ever happened to them. But you can't help but wonder, three years later, what goes through their minds today, especially when the anniversary rolls around. Why did the city not evacuate all residents and visitors? And from the survivor's perspective, the failed criminal case was a setback, coming when many were still trying to rebuild. A core group of residents confronted Sevier County and Gatlinburg leaders at public meetings. They blamed the town for failing to give them proper warning, for having such a weak communication system, for failing to order a mandatory evacuation until it was far too late to save their homes. The hills above Gatlinburg feature row after row of homes and cabins. They sit on those narrow, winding roads, and they're hard to get out of. I'm actually, I'm doing this for the victims. They, they can't talk. I think Gatlinburg needs to be safe. I, that's my number one concern is make Gatlinburg safe. What we're here to do is make changes so if this happens again, we don't lose 14 lives. If you evacuated all of Gatlinburg, then how do we lose 14 lives? They angrily confronted the Gatlinburg City Commission, not just at one meeting, but again and again. We're a community here. We're mountain tough. We've got to be together. We can't be divided. Millions visit that town every year, but Gatlinburg's year-round population is really only about 4,100 people. Old-timers know everyone around here. This is a place used to rallying around the tourism dollar. It's an industry that puts dinner on the tables for so many residents. Tempers, they grew short. Officials ended up on the defensive. Right after the fire, Gatlinburg Mayor Mike Werner won props for declaring his town was mountain tough. Well, now some blamed him for making things worse. I would like to start off, Mr. Mayor. I'd like to start with by addressing your TV interview on May the 25th. You said if you would have lost all of our only industry, things would not have been, things would have been a lot worse. Well, if we were not, if it were not for us citizens <coughs> who you don't care about working that I, industry. I take, I take. Uh, working that industry, working that industry, period, would not be and this would not have happened. Also, you said we should have used common sense. Well, if you would have used common sense properly as a shepherd leader, you would have let let your flock know what was even going on, and suggested a mandatory evacuation the same time you did for our health and well-being. And how could you say that this disaster changed our lives for the better? And why would you say that? Because I think it did. Well, nothing is better for me. Well, in fact, I lost everything. Miss Bram, I'm not going to sit here and have you. Did you hear? I said I lost that. everything. Please be seated. And Miss Cindy, did you get my email from a FEMA trailers? I did, and John Matthews responded to you on my behalf. 
You have a copy of that? I do right here. Okay, because I do have Ms. a copy. Ms. Graham, I ask you to please be seated or you will be escorted out of this room. I was talking to Ms. Oden. I don't care. Sevier County's longtime mayor, Larry Waters, faced complaints. So did Gatlinburg City Manager Cindy Ogle. Did they give people enough warning? Throughout the day, there were communications that were occurring. As I described earlier, we were in different neighborhoods talking with people. We had folks on the phone fielding calls and saying, if you have any concern at all, we strongly recommend that you go ahead and leave. But not everyone listened. Doors slamming in your face and I'm not leaving and you can't make me leave and I'm here to stay. Were they too worried about scaring the tourists or shop owners if they put out an alert? I mean, the conditions were not such that even if we had desired or corralled everybody in town, there would have been much business going on. That was absolutely never, ever a part of the thought process. Never. When authorities finally did issue an alert, Mayor Waters said it failed to go out. When Gatlinburg Fire Chief Greg Miller issued a mandatory evacuation for the city around 8.30 Monday night, no text alerts went to cell phones. The alert didn't go out, and I think everybody assumed that it did. Officials in Gatlinburg tried asking TEMA to send out a severe county-wide text alert to cell phones, the same harsh tone and delivery method as Amber Alerts, but TEMA could not get the necessary approval from Gatlinburg officials, who blame phone and Internet failures due to the extreme conditions. When they tried to text back the exact message which needed approved, they could not do that because all communication had went down. And still the anger bubbled. In East Tennessee, there is one place that's revered in everyone's hearts, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's a source of pride. It's a link to history. It's a moneymaker. But after the fire, many pointed to park personnel as a major reason the disaster got out of hand. That fire the boys set on the Chimney Tops Trail didn't amount to much at first. Because it was so remote and small, supervisors working that warm, parched Thanksgiving weekend mostly chose to keep an eye on it. Yes, we'd been in a drought for months by that point, but the fire was only an acre and a half at the start, and it wasn't like it was going anywhere, or so the Park Service assumed. Containment was the strategy. Draw an imaginary circle lower down on the mountain and make sure the fire goes no further. In theory, that made sense early on, but the plan failed to take into account the weather heading in a few days toward the Great Smoky Mountains, winds of nearly hurricane force heading right for the Smokies and Gatlinburg. Park officials say they had never seen anything like it. This was historical in, in nature. We've never had a fire to do uh, anything like what we witnessed. Thanksgiving Day, Friday, even Saturday, the fire posed no threat in the middle of the park. It spread so slowly from its remote mountain spot that park officials assumed they could handle it. Who knows, it might even burn itself out. That was a flawed assumption. The fire started off, as we say, very small. It was a creeping fire because of the, the, uh, the thick duff that's on the park floor, right? All those years of leaf litter that builds a, a big mat, if you will. So that fire was burning very slowly. I think over a two or three day period, it got up to maybe five, five acres. And so it really didn't spread until that Sunday when the winds really came in um, much earlier than anticipated. On Sunday, conditions changed. The humidity dropped. A so-called weather inversion lifted. That allowed the flames on chimney top to spread faster. 
Aircraft were called in to drop giant buckets of water to try to stop the fire from advancing. It wasn't enough. Sunday night into Monday morning, winds kicked up and they refused to abate. The fire started moving toward Gatlinburg at a faster and faster clip. It was getting out of control. Much too windy to try any more water drops with the helicopters. By lunchtime Monday, that was November 28th, flames were skipping whole sections of the park and they were heading straight for the quaint tourist town. Wind gust reached 87 miles an hour. Trees down power lines, sparking fires on their own. Blazes broke out elsewhere in Sevier County. The smartest thing to do? Run for your life. After the disaster, the U.S. Department of the Interior launched an investigation of the fire and how it was handled. Nearly a year later, the public finally got to see the report. Among the team's findings, the park's communication system didn't integrate well with other area departments. Area first responders needed better radio equipment. Planning and preparedness were poor when disaster struck. Authorities needed to be more proactive about managing dead and dying trees and brush. Park Superintendent Cassius Cash said the Park Service had learned valuable lessons. This would not be a document that sits on the shelf and to collect dust. How could the Park Service let people down? It's a question that lingers three years later. Some 400 survivors and the families of some who didn't make it are now suing the United States government over the fire. Several claims have either been filed or are in the works. Insurance companies are also suing the government for relief. The lawsuits seek millions in damages. They argue the Park Service failed to do its duty to address the fire before it got out of hand. Park personnel, in short, were negligent, the plaintiffs allege. Among those suing are Michael Reed, who lost his wife Constance and two daughters in that giant blaze on Wiley Oakley Road, and Jimmy Vance, whose wife suffered a heart attack and never regained consciousness as the elderly couple drove down Wiley Oakley through that inferno the night of November 28th. There's a lot of people had a lot of losses, as you can tell, and some more and some less. And some of them still haven't gotten over it. Uh, they're, still, they're still in mourning. This is the most tragic thing that's happened in East Tennessee in our lifetime, really. So uh, we hope that uh, the courts will entertain our case and, and give these people some relief that they deserve. Lawyer Sid Gilreath and fellow lawyer Lance Baker argue bad decisions were made by a skeleton crew led by the park's fire management officer, Greg Solansky. That they were unprepared, understaffed, and ultimately unqualified to do this job, right? These are people that, um, speaking of Mr. Solansky, and, and there's others, but he was the one who was, was self-anointing himself as the one that was, was taking control of this. Um, there were others that were supposed to be supervising him, checks and balances, oversight, and none of them seemed to question or ultimately just consented to every decision that he made. Solansky says he made the best decisions he could with the information at hand, and he says he consulted his bosses. The government argues it has sovereign immunity, and it's asking a federal judge in Knoxville to throw the case out. It's true, lawyers will tell you it's very hard to sue the United States government and get anywhere, but it can be done. Jimmy Vance is a wounded soul when he talks about losing his wife May that night and barely escaping with his own life. 
But when he's asked what he hopes to accomplish by suing his own federal government, he sits up straight and stern. Suddenly you see the retired lawyer back at the civil practice he held for so many decades. And so out of this lawsuit is they should follow that rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sovereign immunity people should not be allowed to hide behind and stand behind. Everybody should be responsible for their own actions. Whether they're individuals working for businesses or whether they're individuals working for the government. And when they fail to respond and do what's right, they have to pay the price and should pay the price. Inferno is a podcast from WBIR Channel 10, a Techna company. This episode was hosted by Robin Will Hoyt and John North and written by John North. Executive producers Allison Duff, Tanya Burke, Lauren Hoare, Jeremy Campbell, and Madison Stacy. Produced by Daniel Bigneault. Edited by Brian Holt and Madison Stacy. With original reporting contributed by Becca Hobbiger and Madison Wade. For more on Gatlinburg's loss and recovery, and to hear extra audio that didn't make it into the show, visit the interactive Inferno page at wbir.com forward slash Inferno podcast.